starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, and this is a parenthesis, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without Christ in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who have once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him too, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Praise God for that. You know, um, Paul starts out this passage with, uh, depending on what version you have, a therefore or so then. So if you get a therefore or so then, look at the previous section and just see what was there. And this refers back through verses 1 through 10, obviously, which is one sentence in Greek. If you can believe that, that's whole one chunk is one sentence. Um, Paul was the master of the run-on sentence, if you're an English grammar Greek geek. <laughs> um, I, I was too. Um, I got corrected for that many times until actually I got to seminary and I put a defense out saying, if Paul can write run-on sentences, so can I. <laughs> And I got away with it because they agreed, you know. But we want to look back at verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to just give you a quick summary of what those verses contain. Those verses tell us that we were dead in sins, living for the devil, fulfilling fleshly desires, and children of wrath. Um, being a child of wrath doesn't sound like a good place to be in or to stay in but that's what we were before Christ came and found us and redeemed us but then you get to a but but God is rich in mercy and great love he made us alive with Christ saved us by his grace and his grace alone if you remember Grace means favor, unmerited favor. We are favored by God. What a position to be in. First, we were enemies with God and children of wrath, but then we found favor with God. Amazing. And he seated us in the heavens with Christ, and he tells us that there's no salvation by works, because if there was, we could boast about it. But it's all by grace. There is no salvation by works of any kind. And he finishes that passage with, we are his masterpiece, created to do good works. You know, when you think of what God has given us, who would not want to be a Christian? But still, there are people that are holdouts out there. Someone was just telling me yesterday of their 
elderly um, father-in-law who died yesterday, rejecting God. Didn't want to have anything to do with God. You know, to me, that's one of the saddest positions to be in. Why wouldn't someone want to have something to do with God? Because God has done so much for us. He created us to be his children and to be in fellowship with him. But to reject that. You know, and you think of the fate of that person. And the millions of other people who die out there without Christ in their life. And we can have all of these things I just listed. Ephesians 1 and 2 are the some of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible because it tells us who we are in Christ and what we have as believers. You know, study those two chapters. Live in them for a while. Meditate on them. Let them sink into your soul until you know who you are in Christ without a doubt. Because these are the things he's done for us and he wants us to know that he's done these things for us. And he's given us these things and seated us in these places with him. Paul reminds their Gentile, the Gentiles of their underprivileged status as uncircumcised people. We're getting into the text for tonight in verse 11 there. Um, originally, you know, the, the Gentiles were excluded from faith in Israel for the longest time. And, and God did not want that. God wanted the Gentiles to be able to come to faith in him. And that's why when the temple was created, there was always a court for the Gentiles outside of the courts for the Jews. The Jews could go to that inner sanctuary, not the, not the Holy of Holies, but the next one outside of that. And they had that privilege. The Gentiles had to remain in that outer courtyard. That's why when Jesus came to the temple and overthrew the, the money changers' tables, it was because they were clogging up the court of the Gentiles, selling animals and making a killing on exchanging money. And Jesus didn't want that because he wanted the, the house of God to be a house of prayer for all nations. And that was his passion. That's why he drove them out at that time. And he reminds the, the non-Jews here, the uncircumcised, um, their uncircumcision was because of human descent. The Jews were circumcised physically because of their human descent and the the Gentiles were uncircumcised because of their human. And if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you could go through repentance rituals and baptism rituals and circumcision rituals, and you could convert to Judaism, but as a Gentile, you still could not enter that inner sanctuary area. You were still excluded from that, even though you converted to Judaism. And uh, so God through Paul is reminding that the um, the Christians at Ephesus who are mostly Gentiles that, you know, this is who you were before you came to Christ. You were excluded. Paul doesn't um, use this in any way as derogatory, but he's quoting those who did. And that's the, the key here. Paul isn't criticizing Gentiles for being Gentiles. It something they have no control over. We're born, I was born a male. It's something I had no control over. Um, others of you were born female. It's something you had nothing control over. That's the way God created us. So Paul's not criticizing their humanity in any way. He's just reminding them of the position of insignificance that they held, you know, while they were excluded from worship in Israel. And I, and I love the idea that he reminds the people that were physically circumcised that it was only something done by the hands of men. And we'll go on in this passage to, to see that it's really circumcision of the heart. It's the cutting away of the not the physical bodily flesh, but 
the sin nature flesh. And that's what Jesus came to do, to circumcise our hearts and to cut away the hardness of our hearts and the sinfulness of our hearts. Colossians 2, 11 and 12, great passage. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Here he's also talking to Gentile Christians, and he's saying, you were circumcised not in the flesh, but by Jesus himself in the cutting away of the sinful nature. Isn't that a beautiful word picture? I love the way Paul uses word pictures to illustrate his points. Um, you know, if we were, my favorite book writers are people who use good word illustrations like that. And they're, when they're well-crafted, like Paul's were here, um, you know. And, and Paul is wanting to make sure that the Jews know that they have nothing to boast about in their physical circumcision. Because it held no significance anymore since the coming of Christ. And unfortunately, the Jews still hold to that, you know, thinking that it's an act of righteousness that's drawing them closer to God. But here, Paul is saying, you know, you have nothing to boast about in the fact that you were circumcised. You have nothing to boast about now in the fact that you were born into the Jewish nation. Because now, Jesus has come and that is open to all men, all people, everywhere, from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. We have equal standing before God in Christ, which is such a wonderful thing. You know, none of us are any higher than anyone else, and none of us are no lower than anyone else. God came to redeem us, to raise us all up, to be part of a body. You know, if you think of yourself as a cell and a kidney and say this church is like one-tenth of a kidney and we're all cells in that kidney, we have to function together. We have to be knit together. We have to be in close contact with each other to do our work that God has called us to do. And, you know, that, I love that idea that, you know, he's building us up as a body and we're to be dwelling together and working together for the one single goal of bringing people to the Christ and the knowledge of salvation. Galatians 5, 6, another good passage. Oops, going the wrong way. For increased Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So doesn't that widen the picture and make our mission more important? Because it's not whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised. It's whether we're expressing the faith of God our faith in God through the love we have for our fellow Christians in the body of Christ. That's what counts. That's how they know we'll be, we are Christians. They'll know we are Christians by our love. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s like I did, there was that old Christian song, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. And that was like back in the, the love movement, the hippie movement, and all those things that were going on. And it was a beautiful song, though, because it had such a, a powerful truth in it. And, you know, when we see things like that, you know, I'm sorry about singing. I apologize for that. <laughs> in verse 12, Paul reminds them that they were in their heathen state. 
and four phrases describe how they were. The first is they were without Christ. Romans 9, 4, and 5. talking about the people of Israel. It starts out, the people of Israel, am I in the right place? Romans 9, 4 and 5, yep. Theirs is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. You know, and he's reminding the, the Gentiles here that they were without Christ. They didn't have those covenantal promises that the Jews had. The Jews had everything. They had all of the prophets. They had the hope of the Messiah and an expectation of the Messiah. The Gentiles had no expectation of a, of a Messiah. They all had multiple religions and many false gods. They had no one solid faith that could... Give them a hope of salvation like we have through Jesus. So they were missing all that. And, and Paul reminds them of that here in verse 12. They also had no rights of citizenship in Israel. First, by reason of their birth, they were cut off and despised. The Jews would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. They weren't even allowed to eat together. In fact, after Jesus came to Peter in the, the vision, and the net came down from heaven with all the unclean animals in it. And my, one of my favorite phrases in Scripture, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Um, oh, sorry, you winced. <laughs> you know, he told them, you know, don't consider anything unclean that I call clean. And, and in that statement, God was calling us Gentiles clean because of the work he wanted to do in us. Isn't that amazing? And, and here he's telling them that, you know, you had no citizenship in Israel, in Israel because you were cut off and despised because of your birth. Israel was established as the people of God at that time. No other people had Yahweh as their God. And, and to me that when when that whole vision came to Peter, it was like, first of all, he made all foods clean through that vision. And second of all, he made all people clean through that vision because of the potential for the work that Christ could do in all men's lives, all people's lives. No one is excluded from this. The third point here, the Gentiles were not entitled to the benefits of the covenantal people which I just read, and they, they were the promises of God. It's kind of a long passage, but I want to go there. Exodus 24, 1 through 11. I can't remember if John's that far through Exodus, but hoping we're not stealing any thunder from him. We're not going to stay here long. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord, and others must not come near, and the people may not come up, within him, up with him. Then Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord, which is Yahweh, has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. 
Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood sprinkled on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up now listen to this, and saw God, the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against those leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Can you imagine that? the privilege that God had given those Jews at that time to see him. And if you remember the vision that Ezekiel had, he saw pretty much the same vision of a blue pavement of like sapphire and the glory of God above that. You know, and we're, we're told in the New Testament that no one has seen God at any time. Well, let me blend those two thoughts together. Because it said in the Old Testament that they saw God. And I, I believe when they say no one has seen God, is they're saying no one has seen the entirety of God. Because God is infinite. And no matter where we are in time and space, we are never going to be able to see all of God. And I think that's why he's given us the revelation of himself in his word that he that he has because he wants us to know about him. Even though we can't see him, we can't touch him, we can definitely feel his presence and know his spirit is at work in our hearts. The fourth thing here that Paul talks about is they lived in a world without hope and without God. Could you imagine that? Living in a world completely without hope and without God. That was the condition of the whole Gentile world at the time. Can you imagine the difference that we have now? We do live in a hope that, that live in a world that seems hopeless at the time. It seems like it's going in the total wrong direction, but God is in control. He is sovereign, and he gives us a hope of an eternity with him forever and ever. That's the hope we hold on to, and it's not a hope like, I hope it doesn't rain today, or that kind of foolish hope that we talk about. This hope is a, a vibrant, living expectation of the truth of the word that God will fulfill his promises. And he always has fulfilled his promises. And there's nothing in his word that would ever lead us to believe that he won't continue to fulfill all of his promises to us. So they were without hope and without God in the world. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 get to Timothy you gone too far brothers we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep not not like those off in church or anything like that um, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope Paul wants us to be aware that our hope is living and active. Um, and he's going on to tell them that, you know, his eschatology of the end times. He's trying to tell these people that Christ has not come. Someone came into the Thessalonian church and tried to convince them that Christ has already come and you've missed the boat. And they were worried about those who had died before them and what happened to them. And Paul's Reassuring them, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. 
And he's kind of referring to the Gentile world because they, they don't have the hope that we have in Christ of a resurrection from the dead. Christ's resurrection proves our resurrection. Christ's bodily transformation will prove our bodily transformation someday. You know, and the Bible tells us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. I can't wait for that moment. I hate living in this body of imperfection, this body that just wants to be torn down physically and break down all the time and, and you know, get dog bites and get infections and, and foolish things like that in this world that we deal with. But God wants us to have that hope and to hold on to that hope. No matter what we're going through in life, that hope is far greater than any of our circumstances in life that may be dragging us down. And it's eternal hope. The Gentiles had multiple little G-gods, but didn't even know of the one true God. That's their condition in verse 12. Verse 13 I love for 13 because it's our hope. Um, but now starts out, but I love that, but because it erases everything before it. You know, we're no longer all of these things described in verse 12 if we've come to faith in Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That changes everything, doesn't it? What a wonderful thought. We're no longer out there somewhere, excluded from faith in Christ. He's brought us into his family, into, his, into his, this glorious family that's called the body of Christ. Paul here turns quickly from the tragic state of the Gentiles to what they have become through their reconciliation in Christ. They're no longer separate from Christ. We're no longer separate from Christ. He is the sphere of our new possibilities. In God, all things are possible. He's the sphere of our new possibilities because we're in God. You know, and I don't say that in a, in a prosperity gospel way at all. But there's incredible possibilities for us. If you were to ask me a year and a half ago if Dustin was going to make it through CRD or if he was ever even going to decide to go to CRD, I'd have told you, ah, boy, I don't know. But now I know the possibilities that are in God are incredible. He not only finally decided to go to CRD, but graduated and has a love and passion for Christ in his heart because of the possibilities in God. All those things would be impossible. He is not only the anticipated Messiah for the Jews, but now the Savior of all. Jesus is the meeting point with God for man. The far away have been brought near. Isaiah 57, 19, way back in the Old Testament, first of the major prophets. If you haven't read Isaiah yet, I'd encourage you to read it. It's incredible. says, creating praise on the lips of the mourners of Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord. I will heal them. You know, a lot of times when the Bible speaks of healing, it means forgiveness. Every time Jesus healed someone, what did he do? Forgave them. Sometimes he forgave them first. And to prove that he had the power and authority to forgive people, he healed them, you know, so they're very close, internally mingled. 
when it talks about um, in Isaiah when um, we are healed by his stripes, means we're saved by his stripes. There's also healing in the atonement, but more than healing, there's salvation. What good is it to heal a body if the soul is still dead? You know, you continue on in that tragic state. In Ephesians 1, 7 and 2, 17. I should be able to find this quicker, you'd think. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In verse 8, you've got to read 8. That he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You know, God lavished his grace on us, his favor. And, and to think anything differently is kind of crazy. In 2.17, we'll be there anyway. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace who has made the two one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, and I'll go into 15, by abolishing in his flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. You know, Paul's emphasis here is that we have the peace of Christ. God does not want us to be without peace in our life. And he's not just talking about a lack of conflict as being peace. We think of peace as being a lack of conflict. To the Jews, they would have known exactly what Paul was saying here because of the Old Testament sense of the word peace. And in the Old Testament sense of the word peace, it carried the meaning of someone's total well-being. If you were to say shalom to someone, you meant that you cared about their total well-being of the whole person, not just that you can go home and not have a fight with your wife or that Israel doesn't go to war with his neighbor as being peace. God never meant for that to be called peace, I don't think, because of the richness of the meaning of the word to the Jews in the Old Testament and that meaning carried over to the, the Greek word for peace in the New Testament. We have to have that understanding of what Jesus is talking about through Paul here. And in verse 14, you know, it starts out, for he himself is our peace. This is an emphatic word in the Greek. It means he himself and none other, only himself, talking about Jesus. Um, I could tell you the Greek word is autus. It's meaningless to you. You'll go home and forget that in a heartbeat. Uh, you've probably already forgotten most of it <laughs> or how to pronounce it. But it's so emphatic here, and it has that strong meaning that it's, you know, it's very exclusive language. Jesus is the only one who solved the problem with our relationship with God and brought peace to us with God. Um, and peace, incidentally, is the name, name of God recognized in the Talmud. And Isaiah Jesus is called the Prince of Peace because he came to the world to bring peace. Peace to our hearts, peace to us with God. We were enemies with God. We were at war with God. And then God brought peace with God and through Christ to us. You know, when you think of yourself as being an enemy of God in our pre-saved condition, that's not a good place to be. But now we have peace with God. In Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. Here Paul says that Jesus is our life. In Colossians 1.27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's one of my favorite verses. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we have that eternal hope of glory because we're going to be united physically with Christ in heaven someday. We'll no longer be seated in brown chairs at Calvary Chapel. You know, we already are seated in heavenly places with him in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense, we were talking about earlier, we're still in this earthly life. When you have a rough day, it's like, oh, Lord, please come. I'm so tired of this world. You know, it's easy to get tired of this world. It's easy to get tired of the, the failings of the physical body, the, 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 the hassles of business life and the hassles of, of, you know, family relationships and everything else that comes with life naturally. But God lifts us above that in him. We don't have to live in that kind of life. In this verse, Christ united the Jew and the Gentile and made them one group, the church, which is his body. You know, when you consider a real hatred existed between the two groups, and it tells us that God broke down that dividing wall between the two groups that separated us. Only in Christ. You know, and people that are Jewish that still hold hard to Judaism, you try to witness to them, they don't want anything to do with you, unfortunately. And not just Jews, there's other people that just don't want anything to do with us either. Um, especially if we're preaching Christ. And it talks about this dividing wall, which is like a fence or a railing separating us, or an inner wall Reference to the wall between the Jewish portion of the temple and the Gentile portion. You know, the Gentiles weren't even allowed to see into the Jewish section of the temple. The wall was too high for them to look over to see what the Jews were doing. You know, and to be that excluded, to be in the temple, but to be excluded from what the real goings on, where the real goings on are. You know, what a condition to be in. But now that's been broken down. And it's common rabbinic thought that the law was the wall that separated them by their observance of all other nations. You know, the Jews thought that if they observed the law, that was the dividing wall that separated them from the Gentiles who had no law in Christ or had no, no law from God. And verse 15 continues that same thought. Jesus fulfilled the law by abolishing in his flesh. And the emphasis is in his flesh. Um, the Gnostics who were rising at this time taught that Jesus didn't come in bodily form. And that he was only a spirit being but appeared to be physical. And that when he died... It was just what appeared to be physical that was left on the cross and his spirit part of him went and ascended into heaven and that Jesus never really died. And it, he didn't have real flesh so that his, you know, his blood and his flesh were powerless to save. And that's why Paul always emphasizes this fact that it's in his body, through his blood, his physical body, his fleshly blood. And there's no need for the, the commands and regulations anymore that, you know, plague the Jews who couldn't obey him anyway. Try obeying the law. Ten commandments for one day. Especially since Jesus made it more difficult and he said we sin when we think about sin, sinning. Not just to the, to the temptation. Temptation is not a sin, but when we carry it past that point, which is so easy to, to do upstairs here, um, we sin. You know, he said, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, 
You've committed adultery with her already. Who could live up to that standard? It's impossible. But through Jesus, he made the law ineffective and powerless over us. And it says to, to abolish or having abolished, this is a past event. This isn't something we have to, to ask for or look to happen in our lives. This is a past event that Jesus has already done through his blood for us. And the purpose was to unite humanity with each other and God. God wanted all of humanity to be united under him. And he wanted us to all get along and as one world population of people, not to have separate nations and separate you know, identities and, and nationalities and creeds and all this other stuff. He wanted one people for himself. And through Christ, he did that by creating the body of Christ in the church. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.18. I know we get a lot of references tonight. But the word is so rich, I hate to leave anything out. <laughs> All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Isn't that a wonderful thought? When we come to believe in Christ, he doesn't count our sins against us anymore. He saves us by the power of the word and the blood. In verse 16, um, it points out that it's through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In the Old Testament, the Jews knew that there was no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Jesus had to come in a physical body and shed physical blood for the redemption of his people. And he had to be a spotless, sinless lamb of God to be able to be offered as that sacrifice by God. You know, what a wonderful thing God has done for us and, and we don't deserve any of it. We know we don't deserve any of it. You know, God destroyed all disunity between man and God in Christ at one time. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. This is a nice passage. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. You know, we've been adopted into this family through faith in Christ. And in Christ, there's, now there's neither Jew nor Gentile. None of our nationalities count anymore. They've been done away with. There's neither male nor female, slave or free. In Christ, we're all as one, in one body. And when we start to see differences, we go against the will of God for our lives and for the lives of those around us. We're not to try to find differences or difficulties with one another. We're to find love in each other and compassion for one another and bear each other's burdens in love. And then that way we fulfill the law of Christ. That's another one of my favorite passages from Galatians. And I know I didn't quite quote it quite right, but it's close enough. In verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we have both access to the Father by one Spirit. Jesus came to proclaim the good news of peace, both to the Jews and the Gentiles, the near and the far. Matthew 28, 20, close to the Great Commission. It's the final part of the Great Commission. I'll read the whole Great Commission because it's too good to not include the whole thing. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, what a promise we have. You know, where to go and make disciples. It's easy to make a convert. Converts don't last. Disciples do. And the, the difference is, you know, we can convert someone to Christianity by persuasion. But if we convert them to Christianity by persuasion, then someone else through persuasion could draw them away from Christianity. But when we make a disciple, a follower of Christ, and we sit down with them and we teach them all things that God has commanded in his word, we start teaching them the word and laying it out for them and showing them the, the truths of God's word. That's when we've made a disciple. And too many churches are good at making converts, but not disciples. Very few churches have any kind of discipleship program. And, you know, I can remember growing up in church as a kid. I can remember everyone, probably the 25, 30 kids in Sunday school, were all baptized into the faith at one time. Water baptized in the whole nine yards. I can think of maybe three of them now who are still serving the Lord. And that's because they were never discipled. They were made converts. They got baptized, they raised their hand, said the sinner's prayer. But it didn't go much further than that to transform their lives. And we have to understand that a life that's truly saved is a life that has been transformed. You know, we've made that turnaround from the old life and walking in a different direction into a newness of life. We've put on Christ, as the scripture says, you know, we've taken off the old man and put on the new man. These are all imagery that Paul writes about, in, in, in especially through Ephesians. He loves that imagery of, you know, taking off and putting on, taking off that old dead self that's been crucified with Christ, putting on the new self to live a new life in him. The gospel was, the first, was first taken to the Jews and later through the apostles, and others in obedience to the Great Commission. You know, thankfully, you know, when the day of Pentecost came, you know, they were told to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. And, and, and when God gave them directions, he said, you know, first to Israel or Jerusalem, then to Judea, and then to the whole world. And in sending them out to the whole world, we have the gospel, and we have the privilege of sitting in this building here in Trenton and fellowshipping with one another because the love of Christ is in us. You know, what a beautiful thing, and it's because God willed it and purposed it in his heart for us to be saved and for that message to go out across the whole world and even to America here. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the gospel came to America when the pilgrims first started coming over, you know, and we have that privilege and, and from their heritage brought down to us of that gospel because they were obedient to the word of God and they took the gospel into the whole world. In verse 19, Paul draws a great conclusion. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens 
with God's people and members of God's household. Do you notice how repetitive Paul is? Paul wants us to get the point. <laughs> he doesn't want us to be sitting here going, duh, what does God want? You know, he wants us to know. It's God's will that we know. And that's why Paul is so repetitive. If you miss it in one point, you know, it picks him up in the next point. And he says, you know, we're no longer foreigners and strangers. That first word refers to a, a short-term transient, like a resident alien, or a short-term transient, like someone who would come to Kathy's motel, stay a couple nights, and move on. Short-term transient. Well, I don't mean to that in a derogatory way at all towards your, your clients. <laughs> you know, but, you know, when we travel somewhere, we're short-term transients. We go on vacation. We go to wherever. We stay there for a short period of time, and we come home where we're citizens. And the second term there for strangers is referring to long-term transients or resident aliens protected by law. That would be like a Gentile person living in the territory of Israel, and they were accepted as a long-term resident, but they still had no rights or privileges. The difference here is now we are fellow citizens. We're no longer short-term transients or long-term transients or just resident aliens without rights or privileges. We have it all. Everything that God has to offer, we have now. We're new members of God's household, fully adopted with all the rights of family. You know, when you think of adopting a child, generally you, you don't adopt a child with wrong motives. Some people do. But when you adopt a child, you bring it into your family and you extend to that child the full rights of family membership and you love that child as if it was your own. You know, you don't, you know, adopt someone and bring them into your home and then treat them like they're a foreigner and an alien to your house. But what are you doing here today, tonight? Oh, you wanted to eat tonight? You got to be kidding me. You expect me to feed you every day? We don't treat adopted children that way. And God doesn't treat us that way. He treats us as family members Dearly beloved family members, Philippians um, 3, 20 through 21. It's just a couple pages over before you get to Colossians. But our citizenship is in heaven. I may be a citizen of the U.S. I may be a citizen of Maine. I may now be a citizen of Trenton. I used to be a citizen of Bar Harbor. But you know where my real citizenship is? Heaven. This is where I'm a temporary resident. This is not my home. I may have a house here, but it's not my home. My home is in heaven. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That sounds too good to be true. If this weren't in the Bible, who would believe it? And it's hard for us as Christians to even believe it, but you know, God is going to transform our lowly human bodies to be like his glorious body someday. When he comes for his people, says we wait eagerly for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to return, to take us home with him. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. You know, there's a special 
bond or connection between us as believers. And it says that, you know, we're to do good things for each other, to work hard for each other's sake. You know, this week or Monday and Tuesday, and, and Corey came up Monday and Ellen was there both days. We were able and had the privilege of going up and building that ramp for Brian, you know, to do good for him, to give selflessly for him to benefit and be able to return to CRD. What a joy and a privilege that was. You know, I remember Corey saying last night when he came to Men's Fellowship, you know, he came over to Allen's Tuesday morning and wasn't able to go with us Tuesday because he had something else he had to do. And Tuesday night he said, you know, I just felt like when you guys drove off, I just wanted so much to be with you so we could go up and work together again. And, you know, that's the beauty of being brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the beauty we have of sharing our love and our labor and our resources with each other. You know, God's given those things to us to, that we can share them and do good for each other. Verse 20. Oh, we're members of God's household. Then it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ Jesus himself, with Christ Jesus himself, as the chief cornerstone. You know, there's so much in Scripture that talks about Christ being that cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. But God saw it as something marvelous in his eyes, and that was Christ, our chief cornerstone, the head of our body, our leader, our sovereign, our God. You know, when... when Jesus rose from the grave. He appeared to the disciples, and then Thomas was the last disciple to see him. And, and Jesus had knew what was in Thomas's heart. He said, you know, unless I touch the, the scars in his hand and put my fingers in his side, I won't believe. And when Jesus appeared to him, you know, Jesus invited him to touch him. Put your hand here. Touch my scars. And Thomas just knelt and said, my Lord and my God. What a moment for him. We can do that because he is our Lord and our God. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to hold back our faith in any way. We're being built on this foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 13 More than a few pages back. You don't have to go there. If you don't, I'll read it to you. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation. This is Paul speaking. I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. You know, Paul said, I'm, I'm I came as an apostle to build on the foundation that was already laid, and that foundation was Christ Jesus. That's the one we're being built upon right now. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. Double check my reference. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by the burning them to ashes and made them example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, 
If he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. You know, what a glorious gospel we have. God knows how to deliver us from all our trials. You know, when we're facing a trial or a hardship or a difficulty in life, God knows how to rescue us from it. That may be his purpose for the trial, to see how our trust is, to see if we trust God to bring us through that trial or out of that trial. Either way, one or the other, if he delivers us from the trial or brings us through it, the glory goes to God. And I know there's so many people in this church that have issues they're struggling with and and family issues and problems and and struggles with relationships and, and everything else. But God, we can be rest assured that God will bring us through all of those trials if we look to him in faithfulness and trust. You know, Acts 4.11, going the other way again. I'm good at finding passages where you have to really work to find them. talking about Jesus as the cornerstone. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. You know, that was Jesus. And unfortunately, his people rejected him and never really repented as a nation yet. They will have the opportunity during the the great tribulation because God in his faithfulness is going to send 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, 144,000 men all together, all virgins, men who've never slept with a woman, to be witnesses to the Jews during the tribulation period because he loves his people. And then, of course, the, the two witnesses from the book of Revelation that are killed and, and raised from the dead in front of the world, and the world is shocked. You know, that's how much God loves us. Even though the tribulation has begun and the church is hopefully gone completely out of the world, God still cares enough about his own people, his own chosen race, to send 144,000 witnesses to them to preach the gospel, the good news of Christ. And we're told that there's going to be millions of Jews that come to faith in Christ during that period. Because God's love never ends. It's forever. It's eternal. So faithful and long-suffering that it's indescribable. You know, everything about God is so indescribable when you think about it. A cornerstone often had the name of a king on it for important structures that were built within a city during the the reign of a king. Christ is the cornerstone of the church and the head of the church. Our Savior has his name. He's our cornerstone. Verse 22 And in him, you too were being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In him continues the theme, that repetition in Christ, only in Christ. The church becomes God's residence. As a body, we become the residence of the Holy Spirit. As individuals, we also are the residence of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit dwells and moves and works in his church. And he dwells and moves and works in the individual. And we are his people if we've surrendered our lives totally to him. 
and the spirit is the agent or means for this to be accomplished. He's created us a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God lives in us. He chooses to live in us. In these earthen vessels of clay that are marred and and scratched and chipped and cracked and broken by the things of this world. But yet God chooses to put his glorious image and his glorious Holy Spirit and himself in us. Well, that's the end of this chapter. Um, Next time I get the opportunity to teach, we're going to be in chapter 3. Um, I'm excited for chapter 3. I love chapter 3. Well, I love all of Ephesians. <laughs> well, let's pray. We love you, Holy Father. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, your sacrifice for us and, and, and Paul's repetitive nature and repeating these things to us over and over again to get them cemented into our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we would be better followers of you, Lord, to to live a life of self-sacrifice like you did for each other, Lord. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would go with each of us tonight to our separate homes and our families, Lord. Be the cure in our lives, Lord, for all the evil that's in this world, Lord. And we just give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.